turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel, the 15th chapter, and I want to look at the 28th verse, 1 Samuel 15 and 28. And this is another message in the Life of David series that we began last week. I've been studying the Word of God for a lot of years. I was a nominal studier back before the Lord really convicted my heart and was called to preach and began to think, what in the world am I going to say? I'm called to preach. I need to know what the Word of God says. So I became a serious student of the Word of God around that time. And through the years of studying, I would say that the account of David and Goliath has sort of been one of those no-brainers. You know, you just sort of know that account. And I have taken it for granted and thought, well, there's just not a a whole lot in there besides just kind of what you read on the surface. So nothing could be further from the truth. And I experienced last week a revelation from the Word of God, and all of you have probably seen it many times, but I had never seen it before, and it blessed my heart. And if you'll pray for me, I hope the Lord will bless us here this morning as we share that. The title of the message is The Shepherd Boy King. The Shepherd Boy King. And I want to show you in verse 28, 1 Samuel 15, the significance of what is happening here in the life of David and in the history of the nation of Israel, God's nation, God's chosen nation in the Old Testament. Let's read there in verse 28. And Samuel said unto Saul, that's the hymn, Samuel said unto him, the Lord hath rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day and hath given it to a neighbor of thine that is better than thou. Look at 1 Samuel 16 and verse 1. And this is after Samuel has left Saul, who has been rejected that day as the king. The Lord said unto Samuel, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill thine horn with oil and go. I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. Do you understand the emphasis that I'm placing there? This was a revelation for me, because I've just kind of brushed over reading this many times and not really studied it. But I want you to understand that the day that Saul was visited by Samuel... Saul was deposed as the king of Israel. He is no longer the king on that day. And from that day forward, when the Lord anoints David, the boy, I am going to back up just a little bit of what I said after a further study last week that I thought, well, David was maybe about 15. I can't prove this and I don't know this, but I'm fairly confident in saying to you that he was probably 12. He was probably 12 when he was anointed. And I'm going to show you why. So when David was anointed at somewhere between 12 and 15 years old, will you have that? (laughs) Somewhere between 12 and 15 years old. When he was anointed, he became the king of Israel. He's a shepherd boy king. So as we consider that as the backdrop here, and we read about him being anointed as we closed out last week with the anointment of David. You remember David was out in the fields when Samuel comes to anoint David as king and he goes through the seven sons of Jesse and he says, 
is this all of your boys? Is this all your sons? He says, no, I've got one more out in the field. And so they called David, and the Lord said, arise and anoint him. And if you remember, back when Saul was anointed, some very similar things took place. You know, Saul was out just going along his merry way, doing his own thing. And the Lord anointed him, and from that point, Saul became the king. You can't have two kings, you see? So the Lord removed Saul as king, rejected. He may still act like he is the king. He doesn't act much like a king, by the way. People think he holds the position of king, but he holds it no more. And it says, verse 13, and watch the language. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brethren. And the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This does not mean that David was born again at that point. If you remember, we talked about Saul some time back, and it's pretty clear that around the time that Saul was anointed, the language is very clear that he was born again around that time. He was probably in his late 20s or 30s at that point. But we know that David was born again as a toddler. You remember Psalm 22? When it says that David was made to hope when he was being held in his mother's arms. We know when David was born again because David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, this is when I was born again as a toddler. You see, how did he make a decision for Christ at that point? Y'all, he didn't even know the name of Christ. That name was not even known. He was born again by the sovereign power of God. The Holy Spirit of God touched his heart, turned him into a different person, gave him the new birth. And here we find something different. The anointed of God has the Spirit of God upon him in a mighty way. Why? Because he's the king. The same way it happened to Saul, you remember? But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. You see, the Lord took away his anointing from Saul, and now he has placed that anointing upon David. That's amazing, isn't it? That sent a shockwave through me when I came to comprehend that David is now the king at probably 12 years old. But this wasn't something that was broadcast throughout the nation, you see. This was a private matter at this point between Samuel and God and David. Jesse and the brothers did not even understand really what had happened. I don't believe that David fully understand what had happened. But when David goes back home and does what he does following his anointment, David knew something was different. Looking at this, it's very likely that David was probably anointed at age 12. And he probably goes and faces Goliath at 17 or 18. So there's a period of time that transpires there that some significant things happen in David's life. And the shepherd boy king's life, between the time he's anointed and when he goes and faces Goliath. And we hope to speak about that. But I want you to think about, after David was anointed at probably 12 to 15 years old, what does he do? He just goes back and continues to do the things that he was doing. Keeping his father's sheep subjecting himself to his parents. You know, I told you last week that David is a type of Christ. That just means many things about the life of Christ. You can find comparisons of Christ in the life of David. Christ is the super David. About a thousand years later, whenever he comes on the scene, and don't forget that Christ descends from the line, the genealogy of David. Now, you remember in Luke, the second chapter, we don't know a whole lot about the life of Jesus when he was a boy. But we do have one little nugget given to us in Luke, the second chapter. And you read about when he was 12 years old. And this is another reason that I think David was 12 when he was anointed. 
It says that in Luke 2, in verse 42, when Jesus was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. And when they had fulfilled the days, as they returned, the child Jesus tarried. And this is the account of where they lose Jesus. They leave their son, I believe because he was such a good son and such an obedient son. He was a perfect son, like no son that has ever lived. He's a perfect son. And so they left him there. They didn't realize they left him. And I think in our day and time, a lot of people have left Jesus behind. They've lost Jesus. <laughs> Makes me think of Revelations, the third chapter, that misused and, and out of context verse where it talks about the Lord knocking on the door. You know, that's Jesus knocking on the door of the church, not the door of the heart of the sinner. That's, a, that's not the context. The, the heart of the sinner is not the context of Revelation 3.20. Jesus is knocking on the door of the church, asking to come into the church, and if any man will sup with him, you know, that church can be saved or revived, you see? It only takes one person to answer the door and let Jesus into the church. If religion or denominational world fully understood that verse, it could cause incredible revival. And here, they've left Jesus. They've left him behind. And he goes on and he talks about how the parents finally encounter him. They find him in the temple and he's asking questions. The Son of God, the Messiah, is asking questions and interacting with the doctors and the lawyers. And they were astonished at what they heard from the answers of Jesus. And when they find him, verse 48, they were amazed. And his mother said, Son, why hast thou dealt thus with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. This is a little bit of a rebuke here to the Lord from his mother. And then Jesus gives an answer that lets us know something about the cognizance of Jesus or the realization that you know, Jesus was not just going along wondering what he was here for. He had full cognition. He had full understanding, mental capacity that he was the Son of God. Don't ask me how that works when he's a baby. I don't fully understand that. But he was all God and all man, and he fully understood what he was here to do at 12 years old and even before and after. And he looks at his mother and he says, how is it that she sought me? That's a little rebuke to his mother, isn't it? Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? You remember who Jesus' father was? It's the heavenly father. And they understood not the saying which he spake unto them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. But his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. The point I want you to get out of that is like David, Jesus was subject to his parents, his earthly parent, adoptive parent being Joseph, his mother being Mary. But he was also about his father's business. Isn't that a great lesson for young people, 12-year-olds, you know, teenagers, you know, whatever, those that are still at home? Isn't that a great lesson that he was, Jesus Christ was subject to his parents? You say, well, I don't always like what my parents do, or ask me to do. Neither did I. Neither did I. But it's a good and godly, holy thing to be subject to your parents. Jesus was subject to his parents. You understand, he was called to save his people from their sins. And he still went home. And for that period of time, however many years later, until he's 33 years old and goes and pays for those sins on the cross. You see, during that young period of time, when he was young, he subjected himself to his parents. So did David. So did David. So here is David. He is now the king. I don't think he fully understands what has happened, unlike Jesus who knew every moment of his fleshly existence here on the earth. He knew exactly what was happening. But 
David does not fully understand what was happening, but something was different about him because it says that the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. I want to read to you one of my commentaries here as David goes back to the sheepfold. He's the king, right? He's the shepherd boy king, around 12 years old. So I want to share this with you. In the midst of this dark night of the soul of God's nation, the Lord puts a microscope on the quiet rolling hills of green grass near the hamlet of Bethlehem. Out on the hills there is a a boy, yet a king. Whether you acknowledge he is your king, he is your king anyway. Look and see the boy king playing with the sheep. Instead of learning at the feet of wise sages or being instructed in the ways of ruling men, he is caressing the sheep, caring for them. They drink from his cup while he eats. He runs and leaps with them and they dash into his loving arms. He leads them to still waters where they refresh themselves. He beds them down in lush green pastures. They awake to a bright morning refreshed and ready for the new day. He leads them along right paths that are safe for the sheep. And when the shadows of a dark and frightening valley loom, the little sheep and lambs fear no evil. Because a little shepherd king protects them, they see him diligently standing guard. His rod and his staff causes them to sigh in relief. In the shadows lurks a lion, a bear, wolves, and jackals. But the table is prepared in the presence of these enemies. They drink from his cup. Their cup overflows. He anoints their heads with oil. The shepherd king takes care of the sheep. And the sheep love to dwell with the shepherd king. You get that picture. He's now the king. And as a boy, he's out there taking care of, guarding, attending to the sheep. It's very important that we see this transition and what he did after he was anointed. Look over at Psalm 89 and notice what he says about David, about the anointing of David when he was 12 to 14 to 15 years old. Psalm 89 and 20. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil have I anointed him. You remember that's what Samuel did to him in the presence of his brothers. With whom my hand shall be established, mine arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not exact upon him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. David's going to encounter many sons of wickedness in his days, one of which he's going to encounter that we're going to talk about this morning when he's about 18 years old. He said, the enemy, the son of wickedness, shall not afflict him. And I will beat down his foes before his face and plague them that hate him. But my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him. And in my name shall his horn be established. The horn is a reference to leadership or power. You see what the Lord is saying about David when he was anointed? He is the king whenever he is anointed. Now the word anointed back in 1 Samuel, the 16th chapter, is the Hebrew word mashiach which is the word we know today as Messiah. You get that? This is very significant. It's not just taking a cup of nothing and pouring over somebody's head. In this anointing with oil, God has sanctified the oil and He is seeing David as His deliverer. So He is anointed and He goes back to the sheep. Now the significance of this where it says the Spirit of the Lord came upon David and it departed from Saul, the significance of this is found in accounts like Samson. In Judges, the 14th chapter, you read about Samson, and it says that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And what did Samson do? You know, we always think about Samson. I think maybe rightly so, that he was this large, you know, behemoth type man, muscular type man. And maybe that's true. 
But David was not that way. We've already got a physical description of David, right? So it may be that Samson was not this great physical specimen. He could have just been an ordinary, average-looking Israelite. But the difference between Samson and other people was the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he was able to do mighty, spectacular, amazing things because he had the Spirit of the Lord. He was a Nazarite from his mother's womb, which there were three requirements of a Nazarite. If you were going to be a Nazarite, there were three requirements placed on there. Samson violated in his life all three of those. That's why he lost the blessing of God. You remember Saul was constantly violating the direction of the Holy Spirit. And so the Lord de-anointed him or unanointed him and took the Spirit away from him in that mighty way. Samson, you remember, what did he do? He kills a lion. He kills a thousand Philistines. We think about him being some kind of major physical specimen, but I don't know if that's correct or not. All I know is he had the Spirit of God upon him, and it's the same way that we need to think about what's going on with David here. Very significant, because you're going to read about some things that happen in David's life from age 12 or 13 on down to when he faces Goliath. Now, the significance of the Spirit of the Lord departing from Saul and coming upon David is David is now the anointed king. Okay? Now it says this, and don't let this trip you up, but the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. There's a lot of strange speculation about what that means. And we often understand God's Word and how it doesn't conflict or contradict by what it doesn't say. Okay, that doesn't say that God hired or engaged some evil spirit or evil demon and said, hey, come here, I need you to do some work for me. It doesn't say that. The word evil right there is often associated with trouble. Not sin, but trouble. Now I want to tell you what I think about that. And I know that what I'm about to share with you doesn't violate the character of God because God doesn't have to use sin or engage sin or use wicked demons. He doesn't have to do that because He's got other godly ways that are consistent with His character. So we know what it is not because we know God won't violate His character. But I want you to think about this. Just picture that you're Saul. And you have violated the worship of God because you made sacrifice months or maybe years before. And you have violated the direction of God as the leader because the Lord said, do this, and He didn't do it. And now you've been removed. And that spirit that you had felt directing your, your ways and your moves and the things that you do, you can't find that spirit anymore. It's, it doesn't mean that He's not a child of God because He is a child of God. We see where He was born again. But we see... Can you just picture him having that special anointment removed from him? He doesn't have the strength that he had because that anointment is a special thing like Samson that empowers him to do mighty things. He doesn't have it anymore, and he's not the king anymore. Don't you think you'd be just a little bit fearful and afraid? Lord, you've left me. Maybe in your mind, especially if you were like Saul, you might even think that the Lord didn't even love you anymore. Children of God can get in such bad places that they can think things like that. Saul is in a bad state, and the Lord has told him, you are done. You know, as I said last week, Saul, if he had any courage or bravery or boldness about him, he would have just turned his papers in. He said, I've sinned. Don't call me king anymore. I'm going back home. I'm going to be a farmer. I'm going to do whatever I do. But what did Saul say? Saul, whenever he was deposed and dethroned, Saul reached out in an angry fashion and grabbed Samuel and ripped his coat. And Samuel looked at him and said, that's how the Lord has ripped the kingdom away from you. 
Saul should have said, I turn in my resignation. But instead said, come and worship with me so the people will see me. See, he was so prideful. Let the people see me that maybe they'll think I'm still king. What is the evil spirit that troubled Saul? This is what I think it is. I think the Lord sent one of those angels like Gabriel or another angel that when men saw that mighty angel, they would fall down afraid that God was about to destroy them. And I can just see that angel, that good and godly angel of judgment standing before Saul, constantly saying to him, you're done, you're done, it's over. There's something coming that you're not going to be able to handle. There's a giant in the land over in in Philistia. You're done. You're going to wind up in a further mess than you are if you don't turn in your resignation papers. And if you didn't have the anointed spirit of God, that would just about drive you crazy, wouldn't it? (laughs) That's what I think, that troublesome spirit. The word evil there can also mean terrifying. And was Saul not terrified? He was terrified of his own shadow. And that spirit that Saul had has now been placed upon David, you see? And so Saul's in a bad state. And a troublesome, terrifying spirit is probably whispering to Saul, telling him, this is where you're headed. You are doomed. And you're going to destroy your whole family if you don't go ahead and just get out of the picture. And for the next, what, 15 years, Saul, he acts like a crazy man, like an insane person. He tries to kill David. He kills the priests. Oh my goodness, I'm getting ahead of myself. But I want you to see just how terrified this man was. And that spirit comes upon David you've got David with the Spirit of God on him, the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit of God comes and helps him and it imparts warlike energy and executive and administrative abilities to David and power to David. Like Samson was given power to slay the lion and to slay a thousand Philistines. David has that power because he's the anointed. He's the shepherd boy king. And so what did he do after this came upon him? He went back and he subjected himself to his parents. The little king is still a shepherd. I believe that if David had been thrown into the mix too quickly, number one, Saul would have tried to kill him as a boy. Saul doesn't know who he is, but he's about to be introduced to him. (laughs) So David goes back and he's just a shepherd boy out there in the wilderness. And he's just the same old David. And the brothers and the mom and the dad are thinking, wonder what happened to him. That was strange that he was anointed with oil by Samuel. They didn't really know what happened. They knew there was some significance to it, but they didn't fully understand that he was now their king. Same way that Joseph and Mary didn't understand that Jesus Christ at 12 years old was their king, you see, and he was doing his father's business. So now, in David's life, is the time of the lion and the bear. It's before Goliath, but it's after he was anointed. This is the time of the lion and the bear. If you want to look at 1 Samuel 17 and verse 34. We're going to touch this before we go straight into it, just so you'll know the timeline here. Sometime after David was anointed, which was probably 12, down to the time that he goes and he faces Goliath, this is the time of the lion and the bear. Verse 34, David says to Saul, this is 1 Samuel 17, thy servant kept his father's sheep. This was after David was anointed. That's important. And there came a lion and a bear and took a lamb out of the flock. And the reason this is important is because we want to see what was going on in David's life as the anointed. He is the king when he does this. So if you see a lion and a bear coming after you, you know, unless you fully comprehend that the Spirit of the Lord has anointed you to be king, I would, I would encourage you to get your shotgun or your rifle. You know. But look at what David does. Because he's anointed, he's got superpower from the Lord. 
He said, there came a lion and a bear and took a lamb out of the flock. Now watch the language. And I went after him and smote him and delivered it out of his mouth. So the first hit that David carries out on the lion and the bear, I believe this is two different incidences. One time a lion comes, one time a bear comes. So David hits the lion probably with his rod. And the lion, because of him hitting the lion, drops the lamb out of his mouth. David saves the lamb. And then it says, when he rose against me, the lion turns on David, probably up in the mountains, and he begins to rise against David. Look at what it says. It doesn't say that David, who was a skilled stone slinger, you know, slung his stone from a distance and hit him in the forehead. It doesn't say that. It says that he caught him by his beard. And it appears that with his bare hands, he kills this lion. Now, how many 13-year-old boys can do something like that with their bare hands? I mean, I'm very proud of young Boys, young men who, you know, can take down a 12-point buck, you know, from 300 yards or whatever. But how about going up to that buck and just grabbing him by the chin and taking him and slamming him down and breaking his neck? It's not going to happen. The boy king is anointed. And so he takes that lion and he breaks the neck of the lion, just like Samson killed the lion. You get that? And then at another time, a bear comes. I'm sure David was thinking... (laughs) I've already handled a lion. You know, what's the big deal with a bear? And so he kills a bear in the same way. He hits the bear from behind. The bear drops the lamb. He saves the lamb. The bear turns on him and he goes straight to the bear's throat and he kills the bear and he doesn't have a scratch on him. Why? Because he's the shepherd boy king and he's anointed and he's got the power of God upon him. (laughs) Don't you wish you could bottle that up and sell it? That'd be amazing, wouldn't it? This is the time of the lion and the bear. This is also the time back in 1 Samuel 16 of when David is called to the court of deposed King Saul. If you notice, it says in verse 15 of 1 Samuel 16 that Saul's servant said unto him, Behold, now an evil spirit, a terrifying spirit from God troubleth thee. Let our Lord now command thy servants which are before thee to seek a man who is a cunning player. And verse 17, Saul says, okay, provide for me a man. And they're trying to get somebody in there that will play music, calming music. And no, it wasn't rap music. And no, it wasn't beer drinking country music. (laughs) That would have just stirred up the flesh of Saul, you see. It was calming psalm music, you see. And then answered one of the servants and said, verse 18, notice what he says. Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite. This is after David was anointed after he's killed the lion, after he's killed the bear. And he is a cunning player and a mighty valiant man and a man of war and prudent in matters and a comely person and most importantly, and the Lord is with him. Praise God. So Saul sends messengers and here, isn't this a twist of irony? One of my favorite commentators, Alfred Edersheim, said this about this situation. It is the naturalness of the supernatural that most shows that Jehovah reigneth. It is the naturalness of the supernatural that most shows that Jehovah reigneth. If you're not training your eyes to see the spiritual things of God and you're just ho-hum going on your way, you may never see the providential workings of God just in the naturalness that goes on around you. God is supernatural in the naturalness. And so because Saul is greatly affected by the departing of the Spirit, he looks for someone to come and calm him. Well, in a providential twist, who comes? But the king himself. Y'all see that? He's probably 15, 16 years old by this time. And there's David who has been out there with the sheep sitting in the, in the court of the king, playing music for the king, learning how to be a king 
and really, honestly, truthfully, how not to be a king when he's looking at Saul. You see, David was beholden to what was going on in the court. David saw how insane Saul was and how irrational he was and the, and the things that he did that didn't make any sense. So he gets to see that. And I'm sure he's thinking, well, I don't want to be this way if I was ever the king. And he is the king. I think at this point, David knows he is the king. I think he knows it by now. I mean, a pretty good signal would be you killed a lion and a bear. <laughs> and you took that lion and the bear back to the community. He said, look what I did. So it wasn't like David came back and said, hey, let me tell y'all what I did. No, David takes that line and the bear back and everybody sees it and they go, my goodness, this is amazing. He is seen now as a man of war because he warred with the lion and he warred with the bear. So David goes from the field taking care of sheep to observe the workings of government and he sees Saul's status, how Saul is doing, which is not good. But even in the midst of that, in verse 21, it says that he became Saul's armor bearer. Now, I believe this was like a, a title that was given David because we don't see David with King Saul bearing his armor all of the time. So he would come to the court and he would play, which wasn't very far away from where he lived. And then he would go back home when Saul was calmed down because it says, when the evil spirit, the terrifying spirit from God was upon Saul, David took a harp and played with his hand and Saul was refreshed and was well. And the evil spirit departed from him. You see that? The terrifying spirit. So I asked the question, you know, what do you think that David played and sang to Saul, to Saul. Maybe it was this. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? What was Saul's problem? He was fearful. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? You think David maybe sang a psalm like that? Maybe he just played. But I, I sat down and played with a guitar before, you know, and it's almost like I can't help myself from singing. You know, I just, I find a chord, I find a note, and I just want to sing. And I'm not even inspired by the Holy Spirit. But can you imagine sitting down with that lyre and the former king is there and he's in a terrible, irrational state and he's afraid. And David just begins to play, the Lord is my light. Whom shall I be afraid? So David's become the armor bearer in his anointed state as the king. It's kind of funny, isn't it? The deposed king has named David the king as his armor bearer. And so at some point, David goes back home and we come to 1 Samuel 17. The Philistines gathered together their armies to battle and were gathered together at Shaco or Soko, which belongeth to Judah. This is about seven to ten miles from Bethlehem. Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together, verse 2, and pitched by the valley of Eli and set the battle in array against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on a mountain on the one side and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side and there was a valley between them and there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of brass upon his head, armed with a coat of mail. The weight of the mail was 5,000 shekels of brass and he had greaves of brass upon his legs and a target between his shoulders and the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam. Fearful description of a giant of a man warrior. His spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron and one bearing a shield went before him, and he stood and cried unto the armies of Israel and said, Why are ye come out to set your battle in array? Am not I a Philistine, and ye servants of Saul? That's like saying, that's trash talk is what that is. Just because I'm a Philistine, you don't even need to be on the playing field, on the battlefield. Choose you a man for you, and let him come down to me. And if he be able to fight with me, ha ha, and to kill me, then will we be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then shall ye be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. <laughs> and courageous, deposed King Saul, former King Saul, they heard the words and they were dismayed and greatly afraid. They just went and hid. 
You see, that's proof right there that Saul is deposed. He's afraid. He doesn't ha- if he had been, had the Spirit of God upon him like he had before, he'd have gone out there and shut that giant's mouth. You see? But he couldn't do it anymore. He's irrational. He's afraid because of his sin. So I want to give you a little background here. This battle took place in the land of Israel. It was about 7 to 10 miles from Bethlehem. And the Philistines had invaded the promised land. And at this point, Israel, the men of Israel, Saul too, they're just spiritually out of gas. They, they don't have any effort. They don't have any courage. They don't have any boldness left in them. They're afraid. There's no king on the throne. Even though there's a man being called King Saul, he's not a king. And in their minds, he's, you know, he's a coward. He won't even stand up. You know, like I said before, maybe the terrifying spirit that God sent showed him this giant and said, this guy's coming for you. That'd be hard to sleep at night, wouldn't it? If you saw a picture of this terrifying giant in your dreams and you thought he's coming for me, that'd be terrifying. And here he is. Now, Goliath of Gath was a descendant of the giants that you read about in Joshua's time when the spies went into the land. And in Moses' time, when the spies went in the promised land, they came back and said, there's giants in the land. This man was probably 10 feet tall. He might have been 14 feet, but he's at least... Nine or ten feet tall. He is a giant of a man. And I want you to understand that Goliath is an Old Testament antichrist. His number is 666. It's the number of man. Notice it says his height was six cubits in a span. There's one six. If you count him up, he had six pieces of armor. And then if you count up what it says about his spearhead, he had 600 shekel weight of spearhead. That's 666. His spear was probably about 26 feet long. That's what they think with that heavy of a spearhead. Now, to put it in perspective, if you've heard of Homer, the writer, in his writings, Hector was said to have had a 16 and a half foot spear. And he was just kind of an ordinary sized man. This is a 26 foot spear with a spearhead on it that that weighs about 20 pounds. That's a big spear. (laughs) And notice that All of it put together probably weighed anywhere from 150 to 250 pounds. You know, know, his his armor alone weighed more than I do. And can you imagine the size of a man that it takes to carry around 250 pounds of armor? You know, I read that the average ranger who's out on, you know, patrol or out on mission, you know, 65 to 100 pounds, maybe more. Maybe if you're the radio guy, you probably have to carry more. But, you know, 65 to 100 pounds in their gear, guns, ammunition, grenades. And this guy's carrying around probably 200 plus pounds. That's a big man. I hope y'all don't watch the shows on TV that are so awful and bizarre, like, you know, my 600-pound life. And you see these six, 700, 800-pound people, you know, they can't hardly carry themselves across the floor. But imagine... A 600-pound man who is 10 feet tall and can carry 250 pounds of gear. This guy is a behemoth. He is something to behold. He's intimidating. And not only that, we now associate the name Goliath with something large. But the true meaning of the name Goliath at its root means exposer. And here he is out on the battlefield and he's exposing the weakness of the armies of Israel. Y'all see that? I defy the armies of Israel. He's exposing. He's Goliath the exposer. He's exposing the weakness of their culture. He's exposing that. And if you notice about what David says, David, when he sees him, I'm getting ahead of myself, but he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine to do this? 
You see, this was not just a battle between nations. This was a battle between the city of God and the city of man. You see, the uncircumcised world that did not have the covenant blessing upon them, they have come to destroy the covenant nation. And the exposer is standing there saying, we're about to wipe you out. And there's no man among you that can go toe-to-toe with me. He's an Old Testament antichrist defying everything that is holy. Now, he speaks and he says horrible things. He says, just because I'm a Philistine, you can't handle me. And notice that David is definitely on a different level here. As we lead up to verse 31, Jesse has sent David to see his brothers and see how they do at this war, which is only about 7 to 10 miles from Bethlehem. So David takes some supplies for his brothers and for the captains of his brothers. And when David gets there, he runs up to the edge of the battle where things are going on and the armies are engaging one another. And as he's there talking to his brothers on behalf of his father to go back and report to his father how things are going, that's when Goliath comes out. He's been doing this for 40 days. So this is the 40th day that Goliath has come out and defied and mocked and humiliated the armies of the Lord. See, it's more than just armies fighting. This is a cultural battle. Do you get that? And so David comes and he sees Goliath come and say what he says and try to expose the weaknesses of Israel. And you're just a bunch of weak men. Your king is nothing, which is pretty much true. That deposed King Saul is pretty much nothing. But they don't know that there's a boy king in the crowd. You see that? The rightful king of Israel is standing there talking to his brothers, probably 17, 18 years old. And when he hears this, he is so moved by the blasphemy of this giant, by the wickedness of what he says, and by the cultural attack that he makes on Israel. He just can't, he can't keep himself. And he begins to say, what shall be done to the man that will take this guy down? And that's when the conversation takes place there. And you know, that spreads through the army of Israel. And even David's brother Eliab hears that. This is verse 28, I'm backing up. And Eliab is is angry at David. This tells you right here that David, uh, that Eliab, his brother, doesn't understand that David's the king. If he had understood that David was the king, he would have said, brother, why don't you go out there and show them who is the real Jehovah, what the real culture of God's people is. (laughs) But he says, why don't you be quiet? You came from keeping those few sheep in the wilderness. You see, David had trouble at home. He had the same kind of troubles that you have at home. And he says here, I know your pride and I know the naughtiness of your heart. You've just come to see the battle and see who's going to die and see how bloody it is. And David says, is there not a cause? David says, don't you understand? There's a cause here and I want to take up this cause. And so it comes before Saul. And that's when verse 32, verse 31, he says, when the words were heard which David spake, they rehearsed them before Saul. You know, better, better be careful what you say. It's going to be carried, <laughs> carried to other people. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail him. Thy servant will go and fight this Philistine. Now he's standing there in his shepherd garb, you know. He's been with the sheep. And Saul says, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight him. You're but a youth. And this is a man of war from his youth. This guy's been killing people since he was just a boy. And David rehearses the account there of the lion and the bear. He says, and I'm not going to go back over that with you, but he says, I killed a lion. I killed a bear with my bare hands. And the servant, thy servant slew both the lion and the bear, verse 36, and this uncircumcised Philistine. Notice the language. This wicked culture, child-sacrificing, fornicating uh, uh, culture that this giant represents. He said, I'll do the same thing to him. God will deliver him into my hands. David said, the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion, out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said, go. <laughs> and then Saul tries to arm David. 
Now look, I wish Brother Luke was here because I'm fixing to give a Lord of the Rings quote. Brother Jim will appreciate this. You other Lord of the Rings fans. The future King Aragorn came to King Theoden of Rohan. And y'all are thinking I'm speaking in tongues. The ones that don't know what's going on. You're th- he's speaking in tongues. But the future King Aragorn came to King Theoden of Rohan. One of the guards looked at them and said this, and this stuck with me. It seems you have come on the wing of songs out of the forgotten days. Don't you just feel so defeated at times? Just defeated? Another bad story, another bad event, another issue of drama, another traumatic experience, another death. And you just feel defeated and you just need a breath of fresh air, don't you? And here's King Saul sitting on the throne. He is out of his mind. He is irrational. He's afraid. Nobody will say anything to him about not going to fight Goliath. And he won't say anything about why he's not. And here comes this boy into the court. Don't you know it felt to them like someone coming on the wing of songs out of forgotten days? I mean, they probably thought David had lost his mind. They did. But it's still something there. Just something about this boy. There's something special about him. And so Saul says, well, if you're going to go, take my armor. And David takes the armor of the king. He looks at it, kind of tries it out a little bit. And, and he thinks in his mind, do I represent Saul? Is Saul even the king anymore? He's not, is he? So David says, I, I can't take this armor. I don't represent this deposed king. I represent God himself as his anointed one. You see that? And listen to me very carefully. This is a lesson for the church of God. The church does not need to go in the armor of Saul. The church does not need to think that's how we move forward in the devices of men. Men come up with ways and means that they can you know, bring more people in or save more souls as they falsely think. You know, we need to have this activity. We need to put this armor in the church. I tell you, we don't go in the armor of men. David didn't go in the armor of Saul. We go in the armor of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is boggling to the mind that the church of God, with the activities that God provided for the church, of fellowshipping, of, of sticking to the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ, of interacting with one another, of praying, of the things that God provides for us, breaking bread together. The church has moved forward in the armor of God and the armor of the warrior king, the Lord Jesus Christ, for almost 2,000 years. And you don't need the armor of King Saul. You don't need it. And you might start thinking, well, I got all this going on over here and there's thousands and hundreds and all of this. Don't think like that. David didn't think that way. He said, I didn't prove these. I can't go. Can't go with these. So what does David go with? Just like the church does not go in the armor of modern ways that they haven't proved and will only let them down. So the shepherd boy king takes his staff, verse 40. He goes by the brook. No doubt a little brook was flowing or had flowed there near the battlefield. And whereas Goliath was 666, David's number is 7. Because this is David's weapons. He has a staff. He has five smooth stones. And he has his sling. That's the number seven for his weapons. You got six, the number of man, versus seven, the number of God, the perfect number. And don't think that these were little pebbles that he got. If you look in history and look at it a little bit as research, it, they have found golf ball size stones that were used in slings. They found tennis ball size stones that were used in slings. And what do you think was in the mind of David as he went? I believe that. If he hadn't written it yet, at least these things were probably in his mind. Psalm 33, listen to what he says. As David goes before the giant, look at verse 16, Psalm 33. Do you suppose this was in his mind? There is no king saved by the multitude of an host. 
A mighty man is not delivered by much strength. You want to know what the definition of that word, that phrase mighty man is? Giant. It's giant. A giant is not delivered by much strength. There is no king saved by the multitude of an host. A giant is not delivered by much strength. An horse is a vain thing for safety. Neither shall he deliver any by his great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive from the famine. You think that was on David's mind as he went out there on the battlefield and the hosts on both sides looked and could barely even see the little speck that's coming out there in the middle of this battlefield to face this 10 foot tall giant who was probably 600 pounds. David's got his staff, five smooth stones, and his sling. And then most importantly, he's got the Spirit of the Lord upon him. So here we have the first words of the shepherd boy king to the nation that he rules. The first words. The Philistine drew near to David, and he saw David and he disdained him. He was but a youth. And the Philistine, verse 43 of 1 Samuel 17, said, Am I a dog? You know, he's referring to the stick, the staff that David has. He says, am I a dog that you come to me with a stick? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. It's so bad what Goliath said that it could not be printed in the Word of God. Shame on Goliath for cursing the anointed of the Lord Jesus Christ, the anointed of Jehovah. He curses David. Am I a dog? You're just going to chase me away like a dog with a stick? And the Philistine said, come to me and I will give thy flesh to the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the field. He said, I'm going to kill you and rip you to shreds and you're going to be you know, foul food by the end of the day and beast food by the end of the day. And David speaks, the shepherd boy king speaks the first words that he speaks as a king to the nation. And it's to the enemy of the nation. He says, thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield, but I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. Don't forget, this is the king talking. This is not the shepherd boy anymore. This is the shepherd man king talking to the enemy of the nation. This day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand, and I will smite thee and take thine head from thee, and I will give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day into the fowls of the air. Goliath said, I'm going to feed you to the fowls of the air. David said, I'm going to feed your entire army to the fowls of the air. (laughs) This is not trash talk, by the way. This is God talk right here. This is the anointed of God, the, the one that God has anointed to speak these words. He said, I'm going to feed your army to the fowls of the air, to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into your into our hands. And it came to pass that the Philistine arose, and he began to approach him. David didn't have a sword in his hand. And as he comes to him, he draws nigh to meet David. David hasted. That's the opposite of Saul, the unanointed, isn't it? David runs to the enemy. David runs to embrace this battle. And he hasted and he ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. And as he runs, it says he puts his hand on his bag. He takes out one of those stones that he'd taken from the brook and he puts it in his sling and he begins to sling it. And don't think of it in terms of like a little slingshot that's got forks on it that a, that a child has. This is a man's sling. This is a shepherd's sling. And if you want to think about it in terms of like a saw softball player would take a, a softball and wind up and throw it. Y'all think about that. That's the way the sling was wound up. He's got the stone in it and he takes it like a softball player would take and wind it up and he swings and he slings the stone. And don't ever forget that child of God. Don't ever forget that it was a stone that slew Goliath. You hear me? The rightful king of Israel took a stone and the stone went and hit the forehead of Goliath. And I want you to know that by the grace of God, the stone that the builder rejected, the stone Jesus 
Jesus Christ. That is what God used to slay the giants in your life, the giant of your sin, the giant of the world that stands against you, the giant of your temptations. The Lord took a stone that was rejected by man and he killed the giant of everything that stands against you. It was a stone that came out of the sling of David. It's very significant. The rightful king takes a stone and he slings it and the stone finds its mark in the forehead of the giant and it sinks in. It's so hard and this probably golf ball sized stone sinks into the head of this nasty giant who is defying the culture, who is defying the kingdom of God and he falls flat on his face. Praise God. The rightful king slays and knocks down the giant, but it's not over yet. It says that David runs to the giant. He gets up on top of the body of the giant and he pulls the sword out of the giant and he takes the sword and he hacks the head off of the giant. I've told y'all before, you know, we used to reenact this when we would do enactments in our devotions when the children were little. Sometimes I would be the giant and I would, I would pull my shirt up over my head and I'd let one of the kids sit on top of me. So it made me taller. It was very easy to cut the head off, you know, just by taking a kid off your head. You know what I mean? Y'all get that picture? So we'd be going, I'm the giant. You know, one of the kids would be on top. (laughs) And here comes the sling and they get hit and we fall to the ground very easily, very gently. You know, we go to the ground and then I'm like, I push the child away and I'm just standing there headless, you know, with my head. And there's a few times I'd have Asher and one of the girls, you know, come and hack the head off of the giant. They really like that part. (laughs) There's a few times I thought, is this wrong? Are we teaching our kids something we shouldn't teach them here? You know, we're hacking heads off here. I tell you, we should rejoice that the Lord Jesus Christ on Calvary, the stone which the builders rejected, he went to the cross and he took the head off of Satan. What was Eve told in the Garden of Eden? Even though there was a curse there upon her and a curse upon mankind and a curse upon the earth, the Lord told Eve in the Garden of Eden, the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. And I tell you here in David, as we see him standing on top of the giant and he cuts the head off of the giant, we see that here the seed of the woman that would come from him that would come from Mary who would descend from David many many years later we see a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and we see David hack off the head of the serpent there and he picks up his head and he says it's time to fight now we've won the battle and they routed the Philistines that day and child of grace when the Lord Jesus Christ went to the cross and he died on the cross the stone which the builders rejected he went into the grave and he came out three days and three nights later I've heard it said that the first step that he took out of the grave was what crushed the head of the serpent I tell you the stone which the builders rejected the stone that the Lord sent that nobody cared for even his apostles fled from him the stone stepped on the giant of your sin stepped on the giant Satan, who has the power of death, and he crushed him and he killed him. I'm out of breath. If there's one or more here that would like to follow the Lord and the kingdom of God here on this earth, knowing that you have a shepherd king, we give you that opportunity as we stand and sing.